0: The 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we return this morning. We'll pick up at verse 21. We remember that Jesus in this section of Matthew is describing what has been captured in the simple expression, life together. What does life in the church of Jesus Christ look like, or at least how ought it to look? Jesus started by describing true disciples, the greatest disciples, as little children. The greatest disciples in the kingdom are people who think themselves, think of themselves, and hold themselves as what they truly are, childlike in their own eyes, small, humble creatures, and needy. Last week, he taught us how much we must love one another as fellow children, fellow little ones, sheep in the pen of our shepherd, reflecting on the love of our shepherd who loves every one of us, his sheep, that he would so dearly and tenderly pursue us, leave 99 behind to pursue one to restore a single erring sheep. We learn just how much we must love one another, how we must treat our fellow sheep. We learned that we must not cause our fellow little ones to sin. How it would be better for us to be cast into the deepest sea with a millstone tied around our neck than to lead one of these little ones into sin. And we learned our duty to restore erring sheep, pursuing the sinning brother or sister ourselves as agents of the shepherd to see them restored in the gentlest and the quietest in the easiest and the least embarrassing and most loving way that we possibly can. But what was not addressed in that discussion concerning the sins of Christian brothers is the very practical question of this How many times may a brother or sister, a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, sin, ask forgiveness, and receive it. You know, at what point do we, do we stop extending forgiveness? Well, Peter, often the self-appointed mouthpiece of the disciples, has learned an important lesson. He's learned that it's important to forgive, but naturally, out of his own experience, his own culture, he, he wants to know just what kind of limit is there on this sort of thing, you know? How many times must we forgive? And it's a reasonable question. The Jewish rabbis had actually taken up the question and discussed it and recommended that such forgiveness be extended, but not more than three times. In the Mishnah, we read this. If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time, he's forgiven. The fourth time, he is not forgiven. You'll notice right away, as we go to the text, that Peter is very generous. He is uh, wildly generous compared to the rabbis, but I don't imagine he could possibly have been prepared for the answer that Jesus has to give to his question. And frankly, I'm not sure we're all ready for it either. So let's seek the Lord's grace. Father, we open your word, and it has some very bracing things to say to us. And things that must cause us to shudder. And that for our good. Father, we are to be living Christ's. We are to be his image bearers. We are to be mediators, as it were, of his grace and mercy to others. Father, that being the case, we pray that you will do a mighty work in us. That we may be more and more like he is, that we may reckon with the true accounts of ourselves and of our brothers and sisters, ourselves to you, our brothers and sisters to us, and vice versa. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your Do not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus has just said that we should extend forgiveness 77 times, but woe to the one that sins 78. No more forgiveness for that sinner. Indeed, if you're reading a different translation of God's word this morning, you may have noticed that uh, the Bible can be translated here to say 70 times 7. Either way, the point is not that there is a lavish limit on forgiveness but rather that there is no limit on the forgiveness that we owe one another if seven is the number of completion then 77 or 70 times seven is just jesus way of saying that forgiveness the forgiveness we must extend to our fellow christians is completeness to the nth degree Maybe you remember from the book of Genesis, one Lamech, who promised his wives, Ada and Zillah, that he would be avenged on anyone who injured him 77 times over. Kill one of mine, and I will take out 77 of yours. A real sweet guy. That's the idea here, just Reversed. A spirit of vengefulness, a spirit of revenge, of grudge keeping must yield in a Christian's new heart to a spirit of forgiveness, of love, to a bent on refusing to hold the injuries that he or she has suffered from other people, specifically from fellow Christians, against them. That is, after all, the very meaning of forgiveness, isn't it? It is a refusal to hold against another his or her sins. And Jesus says that refusal must be limitless for the Christian, notwithstanding the measures of church discipline, of confronting sin and so on that Jesus outlined for us last time. Seeking to drive home the point, Jesus pulls one of his most powerful tools out of his homiletical toolbox, a parable. It's a parable that answers the question that you may be asking right now in your heart. Why? Why should I be limitless? Why should I be absolutely bent on forgiving my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, here's the answer. It's a striking story. A certain king who's interested in settling his accounts calls his servants to him one after another. These servants, by the way, would have been government officials uh, who, uh, as usually was the case, held office with a view toward financial gain for themselves. The historian Josephus tells us, for example, of a certain Joseph who heard that 8,000 talents was being bid for a certain taxing rights and who then countered that bid with his own bid of 16,000 talents. Oh, it was a risky business, or it certainly could be, especially if a man like that should find himself unable to pay. That is the kind of situation that's being described here in the Lord's parable. Maybe he bid foolishly high. Maybe the funds just weren't showing up. Maybe it was a drought, I don't know, or a famine or a lull in the economy that caused him to come up short. Supply line crisis of some sort. Maybe he had simply acted foolishly and had squandered what he had. At any rate, he doesn't have the money to pay, not by a long shot. The man in Jesus' story owes owes $10,000 talents. Now the talent was the largest form of currency in that day. Imagine overhearing that someone owes, I don't know, a billion dollars, and you start to get the idea. Actually, some have recommended that the debt is, is actually much more here than can possibly be imagined, as if any of us here could possibly imagine a billion dollars, you know. Or certainly a trillion. But a billion or bazillion, you get the point. It's more than he can possibly pay. By the way, it doesn't appear, does it, that he came willingly before the king. Did you notice that? There's an, there's an animated version of this story. I, I guess it's for kids, presumably, that shows this man sort of ambling his way into court one day, you know, and into the throne room, only to be surprised that his debt has been called. But uh, Jesus says that he was brought before the king, probably under arrest. Since he is unable to pay, the king orders him sold, his wife, his children with him, and all his possessions. Of course, this wouldn't have been in the least surprising to Jesus hearers in those ancient cultures. The law allowed for creditors to, to sell, bind their debtors into slavery if they did not pay up. Yes, wife and children too. They were Uh, in the thinking of that time, uh, belongings of his and naturally to be sold as well. It wouldn't have been enough to pay the debt, obviously, but it would be all the king could save out of this loss. And the sale of the man into slavery would not only be for the purpose of making payment, but also of imposing punishment. Now at this point in the story, what can the man say? What can he say to the king? Can he appeal to justice? Obviously not. What is his only avenue, his only plea? Mercy. Now maybe he imagines for a frenzied moment that he could somehow, he hopes against all hope, that he could actually pay off the debt. Imagine yourself on your knees telling anyone that if they will just give you enough time, you'll pay them that billion that you owe them. Now, it's a ridiculous thing to say, and everyone in the court knows it. It only makes the man on his knees there all the more pathetic, all the more to be pitied. And wonder of wonders. Pity is exactly what he receives the king actually feels for the man A- and he's more than kind he actually gives him much more than he asked the request was for what time time to pay the answer is total forgiveness of the debt no conditions no quid pro quo nothing just Forgiven! The debt is wiped away. It's gone. You are free. The debt is paid. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, my dear brothers and sisters, it should. Very familiar indeed. But now watch as the forgiven servant turns, and he seeks out a fellow servant. And that's the idea. It did not just happen upon him. He goes looking for him to demand payment of what debt he owes him. Now, to get some sense of the scale here between 10,000 talents that he has been forgiven and the 100 denarii that he is owed, consider this. There were 6,000 denarii in a single talent. So the debt he is owed from this servant isn't even a tiny, tiny fraction of, of the huge debt, he's been forgiven. It's hardly anything, really, by comparison. But the forgiven servant does not ask. He demands. And not only does he man demand, he demands violently and cruelly and graspingly. He takes hold of his fellow servant and he begins choking him. Eyes bulging face, red with anger, pay me what you owe. And notice the language. The debtor uses the very same language as the former debtor had used earlier that day in court. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now in this case, it is a much more reasonable thing to say. He could pay, given the time, he could pay the hundred denarii, but of course the prospect is completely stifled on the scene by the cruel servant's solution. He has the man thrown in prison, the one place he will most certainly not be able to keep his promise. Now naturally the onlooking servants who know full well how the day's events have been unfolding have, are, are very distressed here. And they go to the king and they report to him just what's taken place. And just as naturally, the king demands this cruel servant's return to court where he calls him, and you're meant to hear these words. You wicked servant. And we're meant to hear carefully the king's words to the servant, not what you might have expected to hear. Not, you should have canceled the debt. No, what does he say? You should have had mercy. Where does mercy come from? Mercy comes from the heart. More on that later. For now, notice that this new punishment is actually worse than the one the king first proposed. Now it's not simply into slavery, it is to the jailers that he has sent. Literally, the word is he has sent to the torturers. Handed over to the torturers. This noun torturers appears only here in the New Testament. And as one commentator points out, these were officials appointed by the court to torture those who had committed atrocious crimes. Now put on your seatbelts because here's the hook. Jesus draws the conclusion that our hearts have been dreading to draw. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Last time we felt that kind of shiver run up and down our spines was when Jesus said to us in the Sermon on the Mount, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no way that we can mistake or escape the Lord's argument here. Considering the unimaginable size of the original debt that is forgiven, it is unthinkable, it is unforgivable that the smaller debt should not be promptly, sincerely, and cheerfully forgiven. A person who has been shown such unspeakable mercy must certainly extend that mercy To others, and if it seems like Jesus is issuing a true and real threat here, well, he is. Dear ones, this is Jesus' negative version of the positive prayer you just prayed to him a few minutes ago. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven. Our debtors, in fact, if you remember back to our time in the Sermon on the Mount, this was the only petition Jesus pulled out of that prayer for special treatment, for special commentary when he first taught it to us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, for if you have forgiven others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. His point is that the heart that has been open to receive forgiveness is also by nature open to extend it. And conversely, if a person is unforgiving, it is because he or she has not really appreciated, perhaps hasn't even experienced the forgiveness. Of God, And why? Why hasn't that person experienced God's forgiveness? Well, simple. He hasn't sought it. Not really. And someone who despises God's forgiveness so as not to seek it should not be surprised to find out that he doesn't have it. in some if you are unforgiving it is a sign that you are unforgiven and that my friends is a terrible and terrifying place to be there's none worse not all sermons are as much fun to preach but I am bound by my ministerial oath and ordination to cause myself and you now to translate this parable to ourselves. We all understand the crime that we're witnessing here in this parable. We sympathize with those fellow servants of the king who, who uh, could not bear to see this man get away with this treatment of his and their fellow servant. The question is whether we're willing to hold this mirror now up to ourselves, up to our own faces, our own hearts, to ask whether we see anything of ourselves in that unmerciful unmerciful servant. Now just think about this for a minute. Of what has God forgiven you? What of ongoing sin. What mountain of sin and guilt that we have piled up? All of your selfishness, all of your pride, your pettiness, your stinginess, your impurity, your greed. All the things that we must honestly confess to God and do regularly, did this morning in the house of worship, your neglect of him and your neglect of his word and your ingratitude and your sinful anger, these 10,000 talents, the trillions that you owe, he has taken all of it, all of it on himself at the cross and in turn he has forgiven you. He has removed all of this from you and remembers all of this debt against you no more. And what have you and I done with this forgiveness? We have turned around and we have sinned more. We've sinned again and again. And what what has he done in turn, forgiven you, and forgiven you, again, and again, and again, and again. Now, someone else sins, one of your brothers and sisters, I sin against you, who are you? Well, we all know who you are not. God. You are not God. Your sins and my sins against God, are the evil of them is magnified because we commit them against the thrice holy, just and righteous God. But you are not God. And so when they sin against you, little one their sin is not magnified and what are those sins anyway you can name some of them he lied to you maybe a dollar's worth of debt you have lied to God a trillion dollars worth of debt She has not shown you the respect that you think you are due, perhaps. How have you been doing in showing God what he is due? They broke their promise to you, and and now you are going to cling to their failure, and you're going to rehearse it over and over in your mind against them really Oh really You have made a thousand promises to God Or at least have repeated the same promises thousands of times you have We've heard each other making these promises in this house to love the Lord our God above all and our neighbors as ourselves you have promised to care for the poor you have promise to be generous, to be kind, to take hold of your thoughts and bring them captive to Christ to obey all of God's commandments. And you have broken promise after promise after promise after promise after promise. Not to put too fine a point on it. You have lied to God. And now you're going to get all bent out of shape Because someone had the temerity to do what to you? (laughs) Whatever it is to lie to you, to injure your pride, to misrepresent you? You're going to stew and boil over someone's failure to pay your ideas or your words the respect that you think (laughs) they deserve? You're going to go about speaking ill of Brothers and sisters, for whatever it is that they've done or failed to you to do to you, fill in the blank, whatever it is. really? Come now. Jesus says, let's reason together. <laughs> do you see the disconnect? Do you see the total contradiction here? What kind of gall must it take for a person who has been forgiven so unspeakably much to turn around for that person, for you to turn around and refuse to forgive and instead to hold another's debt against them so measly in comparison to what you have been forgiven? That's the force of this parable. Ah, but what if he's never asked my forgiveness? What if there's not been the transaction the likes of which we heard about last week? Well, then the failure certainly could be yours for not pursuing that brother or sister who sinned against you, but... Even for whatever reason, in the absence of the transaction of forgiveness, a person forgiven as much as you've been forgiven ought to have forgiveness on the tips of your fingers. It should be just bursting from you, ready, waiting, wanting to extend that forgiveness in a heartbeat. Speaking of the heart, all of this is devastatingly brought home to us in the end, isn't it? With three little words. From your heart. From your heart. With three words. Jesus has just unmasked every effort we make to evade the force of his teaching here. There's no room for private vengeance, for nursing your offended pride, for withholding love from your brother or sister. See, it's not enough just to say, well, I, of course I forgive them and make a pretense of forgiveness while harboring your grudges. As always, the Lord's eyes Are where? On the heart. But you see, when you forgive that way, when you forgive from your heart, the forgiveness you give others will look a whole lot like the forgiveness that you've received, won't it? The forgiveness you've received from God. Because you will cast their sins behind your back you will trample their sins under your feet you will refuse to remember their sins against them anymore in sum when you forgive from your heart you are as glad to forgive them as God delights you to forgive.